it taught me that I didn't want to work for a living. I wanted to be in front of people doing stupid things or making them laugh. Making them watch one thing and as I was doing another gave me something I'll always remember. Greetings, everybody. It's nice to have you in here with me. This is Keith Billick. You're listening to the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. How's everybody doing? Happy spring, by the way. It's a a very welcome change up here where I live in Michigan. I've been able to actually get outside and play actual music with actual people. What a what a crazy concept, but it's it's been very good for uh, you know for the spirit. And I hope there's a lot more where that came from. I, I expect there will be. And I hope the same is the case for all of you. I'm actually looking forward to doing some playing so much that I ordered myself some new banjo heads. I have a, a little bit of a ritual. I imagine a lot of you do the same thing where whenever I change my banjo head, which ends up being every, I don't know, two or three years or so, I take it all apart and I shine up all the metal and it, it needs it badly. Usually by the time by the time I'm replacing the head, the middle the metal is all kinda cruddy just from from being around me and being around the all the playing situations that I'm in and ash from campfires and dust and dirt from outside. It's it's just kinda gnarly. So I, I usually have a, a nice little session taking it all apart and polishing everything up and getting it looking uh maybe not brand new but maybe newer so i'm excited to do that and get this thing sounding as good as it can and uh ready for more playing and speaking of me doing some playing let's talk about this theme music that you're hearing a lot of you have heard me say this already but just in case we have some folks who have skipped some episodes or maybe you're even a first-time listener this intro theme music that you're hearing is one of my uh, recent recordings with uh, some friends of mine. We we have this intro track. It's a full-length track with some superstar musicians. Uh, we also did an outro track that you'll hear at the end of this episode. And there are a couple ways you can get those tracks to listen to without me having to hear me talking over it. Uh, the first way is to go to banjopodcast.com. That's the home website for the show here. And there is a shop and you can download those pieces of music. And another cool thing, because I know most of you are banjo players, you can buy a, a special download pack uh, from the website that includes banjo tablature for all the banjo parts and the banjo solos that you hear. So very cool stuff. I hope you I hope you dig what you're hearing, and if you do, check that out. Uh, the other way to get the downloaded songs and tablature is to go to the Patreon site. That's patreon.com slash banjo podcast, and that's the way to become a supporter of the show. And actually, I need to talk about this for a while because I have just revamped my Patreon page to have new rewards, new tiers, and so let me take just a quick second to tell you all about that. So if you go to Patreon, the the initial pledge amount is uh, only $1 per month. And all it takes is a pledge of $1 per month that goes to support the show. And you'll get those uh, two downloaded songs, uh, banjo tablature along with it, and also a discount code for 3 bucks off anything else in the online merch store. That's at banjopodcast.com. So there's t-shirts there, stickers, and you'll get a discount on those. 
Uh, the next tier up is for $4 a month, you will get the downloads, a discount code for 5 bucks a month, and here's one of the brand new things. I'm going to be hosting a monthly video conference for people at the $4 and up levels, and the first one I think is going to be in April, so stay tuned for the exact date and link for me. It'll probably be on like a Google Meet uh, video conference, and We'll play some banjos, talk about banjos. I'll be open for if you have questions about me or about the podcast. It'll just kind of be a, a cool hangout to to discuss banjos. And we're going to do that every month. I'm going to plan to have some uh, special guest stars sometimes. Um, so stay tuned for that. That's going to be really cool. Uh, the next level up from that, uh, you will get all of the things I've mentioned. You'll get to come to the VIP lounge video conferences, the music, uh, discount code for seven bucks, and you get a personal shout out on the podcast. And then I've just added an upper tier, which you get all of the things I already listed. Plus you get a, an official picky fingers logo t-shirt. And those things are awesome. And you can check those out once again at banjopodcast.com. Uh, that's where the shop is. Or if you want to go the Patreon route and support the show, that's at patreon.com slash banjo podcast. So s- sorry for the long-winded way of explaining that, but I just spent a bit of time uh, redoing all those tiers today, and I just wanted to make that announcement, make sure you all know what's going on. But speaking of Patreon, I did mention that one of the tiers, the reward is to get your personal shout-out as a a special thanks for being a supporter. And so, of course, today we have a couple supporters that need their shout-out. And I'm very proud of these these two individuals. They both come from the Davy Jones School of Banjo Instruction. And, of course, I love hearing that, that they are not only supporting an excellent, excellent podcast, if I do say so myself, but also taking lessons from a great teacher. So first one up is Greg Webster, and he lives in Colorado now, but he used to take lessons from Davey. He just says that every time he listens to the show, he wants to pick up the banjo. Well, you know what? So do I, Greg. You know, sometimes it's actually even frustrating that I have to finish working on these podcasts. Sometimes I hear really cool things that the guests say, and I just want to pick up the instrument right there. So I, I totally feel you, and I do appreciate your support there. The next patron of the show is Louis Cayadito. And he's up in my old stomping grounds, Lansing, Michigan, and apparently he haunts elderly instruments, taking care of my old banjo department, apparently. And he claims he spends way too much time there bugging the employees and buying things that he doesn't need. Well, Louis, I can tell you, as a former longtime employee of elderly, if we didn't have people like you coming in to bug us and buy things that you don't need we would be bugging each other and buying things that we don't need because it's it's just as cool for us to to be in that environment as it is for you to visit there. So uh, thank you both Louie and Greg for your support. Once again, that's patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a supporter of the show. The other ways to track me down, send me an email, uh, pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com or you could follow me on all the socials. I'm on Facebook under my name, Keith Billick. You can find me on Twitter, at Banjo Podcast, 
or on Instagram. I am at picky underscore fingers. So check me out on all those and, and keep up with all the latest banjo podcast news. Today's episode is the first half of an interview with the string wizard himself, John McEwen. Now, John's accomplishments over his career are way too numerous for me to even start telling you. Most people know him as the longtime uh, banjo player and multi-instrumentalist from the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. He has since gone on to have a very prolific solo career. He's toured the world. He's produced albums such as uh, Steve Martin's The Crow album, for which uh, they won a Grammy. He's also an author. And so he's he's all over the place and he's still playing and performing and just has a remarkable career and list of achievements. So let's put our hands together and give a proper picky fingers welcome to John McEwen. Welcome to the show, John. You're you're known as a multi-instrumentalist, the string wizard yourself, but for at least the next hour or so, we're gonna we're gonna pretend that banjo is definitely your favorite one by far. Is that okay with you? It seems to be a favorite one, yeah. And uh it's right here. <laughs> yeah. Well you're in you're in good company. It's your it's your kind of audience. I know you've told your story a lot, but just in case anyone isn't familiar with your background, get us started with what initially turned you on to the banjo and, and how you came to devote your life to the instrument. Oh, well, I was playing guitar as a 16, as a 17 year old, because my brother was showing me how to play. Mm. And for about six months, I learned a couple of things. I could play freight train, stuff like that. And at 17 and a half, somebody said, hey, you want to go see this group called the Dillards? And I said, what's a Dillard? <laughs> I had no idea. And I went to this folk club called the Mona Me in Orange County, California. And the Dillards had just traveled out from the Ozarks. They'd gotten, they'd shot a few of the Andy Griffith shows. They were getting underway. That in itself is an incredible story that you ought to have Rodney tell you sometime. But, uh, Doug Dillard came on stage and kicked off Hickory Hollow, and my heart stopped. And I went 17 and a half. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. (laughs) And I ran home uh, and 
under Rodney's direction, took the fifth string off my guitar and put an H.O. Railroad spike at the fifth fret, <laughs> put a first string there and took off the sixth string and threw it away and uh, started playing, but I didn't know how to tune it. So I had to go see him again and again and again. And I went to see the Dillards three times a week, it seems like. In L.A., there were seven clubs all around town, one in, I in, in Glendale, the Ash Grove in Hollywood, the Golden Bear, the Mecca, the Monami, and they'd do a week at each one. It was a wonderful training. So ground. you always had had your choice of of somewhere to go to hear some some good inspiring performances. To see the Dillards, yeah, yeah. But I also got to see the Stoneman family. Flat and Scruggs came out one time. Uh, Bill Monroe. Fast forward a couple of years. And uh, I ended up sitting in with Bill Monroe at the Ash Grove in 1967. Do you remember what you played? Chucking the corn. And how, how was he to deal with? That's pretty good picking there, son. <laughs> <laughs> he was fine. I, I had no idea. We were, The Dirt Band was doing a, a concert that night. It was one of the first big concerts in the, in the area. It was on a football field. We were one of many acts. There were the Doors, the Buffalo Springfield, the Birds, the Association, and uh, some other group. Oh, the, 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 I said the Doors. Anyway, the Dirt Band. And uh, I made sure we went on early. We only had one hit. They had two, some of them, or whatever. Yeah. And I wanted to get done so I could go catch Monroe at a club and just go <laughs> the hill in Hollywood. And I got to the club, and the club owner says, "You want to sit in, sit in with Bill Monroe?" And I said, "Yeah, sure, fat chance, slim chance, same thing." Yeah. But uh, he said, "Well, I told him you're here, and he just went on for the second set. He's going to call you up." I went, "Oh no!" <laughs> and I went up and picked with him. And years later, he returned the favor. Years later, as the nitty gritty dirt band developed, it was around nineteen. Uh, 89 or so in Zurich, Switzerland, we were doing, well, we were doing a, a country tour, country band tour. We were nitty gritty dirt band with one of the acts, you know, George Jones, Johnny Cash, June Carter, uh, Crystal Gale and Bill Monroe and Johnny Russell and, and uh, Mr. Monroe, this is our last concert. And I've arranged a club in Zurich to, uh, to stay open for us. You want to you go jam? Uh, I'll be there around 12 o'clock, midnight. And sure enough, he showed up, and I got a picture with Bill Monroe jamming. And I, I was playing the fiddle, and he looks at me, you know Uncle Penn on that thing? And uh, my Uncle Penn was more like Aunt Penn, I think. But <laughs> we did it. <laughs> it. It was late. Hopefully you can be forgiven for, for any missteps. I wasn't Ricky Skaggs. And right. boy, my God, I'm not Ricky Skaggs. But anyway. So who, uh, obviously Dillard was one of your favorites. Who else were you digging and Bill trying Keith. to learn off of? Bill Keith was early, early on when, when he put out that album that was going. <laughs> you know, it was like, Yes, sir. How did those notes fly out of there? You know, it's like, that was just crazy to hear all those notes coming out of 
because I was listening to Dillard and Scruggs style. Mm-hmm. Now, Dillard, one time he was going upstairs at a club, uh, the Golden Bear, and he, he turned and looked at me and went, I don't have my picture. And I said, I've never heard lead on the fourth string and nothing like that. He goes, J.D. Crow, go check him out. He plays with Jimmy Martin. Right. I went and bought my first Jimmy Martin album and was just amazed at J.D. Crow. He sounded so much like Earl. Oh. And everybody wants to sound like Earl, you know, but J.D. ended up sounding like J.D. Then I, years went by and I met him and picked with him a few times. It was really neat. But uh, um, uh, often overlooked is uh, Eddie Adcock. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Anyway, and Eddie Adcock's Travis stuff was really cool to me, and that, that Travis because it's like Travis guitar. Sure. And. And his his idea of he would rush sometimes, and I, I like that, you know. And he would he would put some and some banjo players in. He speeds up and stuff. Yeah, but he that's good. <laughs> Gives it a pep. Yeah, yeah. So Adcock was playing his soul which he did quite often. Mm-hmm. Let's see, Adcock, Keith, Dillard, uh, Walter Hensley. He was great. Oh, yeah. People never talk about him, you know. And of course, uh, Bobby Thompson. And but I hadn't heard. I, I came into them slowly in the 1960s. There was no communication, no internet. Um, you had to go home to use the phone, you know. Right? <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> I have to get home and call so and so. And but. I had the Pete Seeger How to Play the Five String Banjo Red Book. Mm-hmm. You know that book? Yeah, yeah. That, and uh, that took me away. That was in my early years. I got that book and learned how to how to do a few things like simple things. And uh, it got me into. the classical idea of like what did he do uh jesus i can't remember that one right now but it, it got into different styles it got into using your index finger to pick the note the uh middle finger to brush and and then i, I heard billy fair play a song on a, you know billy fair no 
F-A-I-E-R. It was on the American Folk Series of Banjo. It's a black album. Huh. He played no, I'm not football. familiar. Pardon? I'm, I'm not familiar, no. Oh, this is an old timer. He may not, may not still be around. But uh, I heard him do Green Corn, and that took me away. because well, Steve Martin and I were both starting to play the banjo because we heard the banjo. And, and Steve and I got our dream job at 16 years old working in Disneyland Magic Shop mm-hmm. and doing magic tricks all day. And music hadn't come along yet. But by the time I was 17, 17 and a half, the Dillard thing happened, and I'm still working the magic shop. And by 18, Frontierland was having bluegrass groups. I saw Herb Peterson playing with the Blue Sky Boys, I think it was. Yeah, and Steve and I had called each other. We were at two different shops there. Hey, when are you going to take your break? Oh, okay, I'll meet you in Frontierland. And we'd go run over to Frontierland to see the Mad Mountain Ramblers. Do you know who that was? No. Oh, man, magic times. 1966, maybe. And magic times. It was Mad Mountain Ramblers with David Lindley on banjo. Oh, well, I know him, yeah. Yeah. Richard Green on fiddle. Uh Chris Darrell, a little lesser known. He ended up being in the Dirt Band for a couple years. Chris Darrell on mandolin singing funky music, Steve somebody on guitar, and I don't remember the bass player. But we'd go watch them for a half hour and rush back to work. To uh... and Anyway, it was really fun. So the let... first place I heard uh... Salt Creek. You know, and Herb Peterson played it. And I... And I remember watching him going I get it I can play that song I ran I got home that day and I went oh, what's that that's all he did there didn't it? oh yeah single string thing <laughs> you know and it was like Anyway, it just it exploded my head. <laughs> were you, were you ever a performing magician in those days? Did you did you perform? A, a bit, yeah. I had a card. Have wand, will travel. Do you think that taught you anything that you would ever use in your music career? Those early days of performing magic. It taught me that I didn't want to work for a living. <laughs> I wanted to be in front of people doing stupid things. And or making them laugh, or uh, making them watch one thing, and and as I was doing another, it was it gave me something that I will always uh, forget. Remember, forget, forget to remember. No, <laughs> gave me something I'll always remember, and that performing in front of people was hard, but. In the magic shop, your audience changed every 20, 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. You had a new group, people coming through. You could I, I sold 156 Swingali decks one day. <laughs> that was pretty good. I held the record. That's the that's the deck where all the cards seem the same, then they then they changed it all different. It's a simple trick. Uh-huh. 
take a card, whatever. And uh, so that was good. And it gave me a good idea how important it is to not talk and make people go. And then next thing I remember is, you know what I mean? You, how, how you can. Yeah. The timing. Yeah, yeah. What's yeah. The mo- ask me what the most important thing in comedy is. Hey John, what's the most important thing I mean, in comedy? Yeah. <laughs> right. The, the interrupting anyway. cow joke. Yeah. So the music came along and I started playing and then the dirt band started. I was, Les Thompson was a guy I met at the McCabe's guitar shop in Long Beach. My first year of college, I, I <laughs> uh, my dad, I want to go to Long Beach State College. I didn't say the part because it was only four miles from McCabe's guitar shop. But, okay. <laughs> and uh, I went to... I, I booked my classes from, so they went from eight to 10 and then three to four. And I go to McCabe's in between all that time. I'd spend eight hours a day playing the banjo. And then Les Thompson was playing at McCabe playing mandolin and we started a bluegrass group. And that was really fun. The Wilmore City Moonshiner. And we were like really young. This is before the dirt band. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is proud to be sponsored by Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, you'll learn bluegrass, old-time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of banjo instruction, with courses including Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward-style banjo with Bruce Molsky, The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, and Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. Each course includes high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play with. So what I need you to do is join any of Peghead Nation's video courses, and you're going to get your first month's free uh, just by being a Picky Fingers listener. Go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. That's all one word, all lowercase. And once again, that gets you your first month free at pegheadnation.com. The Picky Fingers podcast is also sponsored by Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted instruments. We all know how cool it is to be able to support the locally owned mom and pop businesses rather than going to the big box stores. Well, with Elderly Instruments, you're getting a place that's been family owned since 1972, located in Lansing, Michigan, but they do ship worldwide. However, shopping at Elderly Instruments doesn't mean a compromise in quality. They have a vast selection of acoustic and electric guitars, banjos, ukuleles, mandolins, and all the accessories and books you might need. They have a world-renowned repair shop that sets up all the instruments, and perhaps most importantly, a down-to-earth knowledgeable sales staff that is there to help you with anything you need from advice on the high-dollar vintage instrument that you're looking for right down to what picks you should buy. Um, They're happy to help, and they're just a phone call or an internet search away. Go to elderly.com or call them at 517-372-7880 and tell them Picky Fingers sent you.
So when you when you ended up being in the dirt band, what attracted you to their sound? Because it seemed like you, no you were sound. pretty they, focused you know, on. Uh, uh, I played with Les for nine months. The group we must have done oh probably fifteen or twenty jobs. You know, pizza parlors, stuff like that. In sixteen. Yeah. I was 18, 19, 19. And uh, then I played with Michael Murphy for, for after I quit with Les, I went, Michael Murphy came along and I played solo shows in between. Everybody was scrambling, you know? This is Southern California, the heart of the music scene. I didn't know that it was possible to get on the radio. I wanted to, you know, really. But I played the banjo. I need a band. Yeah. I was driving to my second college one day because I got Long Beach State was one year, then Santa Ana College was another year, and I heard this song on the radio, and I knew the bass player was a mandolin player in a San Diego bluegrass group, Chris okay. Hillman, and the banjo player in his group in San Diego, the, uh, what was it? It'll come to me. It was a really crazy name. The banjo player was Bernie Ledden. And Bernie went on to do the Eagles. Chris went on to do the Birds. And, you know, but back then, that's the greatest sound I've ever heard. Turn, turn. I'm second year of college, going to school. I've turned on the radio. That was on the radio. I went to the beach. Get me out of here. You know, I'm going to just find a group. The Dirt Band was forming in Long Beach. And Les called me and said, hey, I'm in this new group. We're just getting together. We've been, we got a job. Well, maybe you ought to come play with the guys. They played a couple of months. And uh, I taught them. I said, well, let's see if they can learn dismal swamp. I was attracted to minor, to other tunings early on. Sorry. So they learned Dismal Swamp and they had them back me up at the Topanga Canyon banjo contest. And I won. I went, well, there's a group. We played together. The guys, and we, there was, a, you know, it, it was just organic. Was, they were at a club. I was there. I played. And yeah, I could learn that song. Show me like my sister Kate. That's only got a couple of chords. I could play like a. Uh, you know, play, I played four-string style. You know, things like that. And uh, mm. we did some folk music. This is 1966. 1967, Buy From Me The Rain came along that put us on that rock and roll show with The Doors and all those people. And we had made our first album, 
then we went to make a second album and a third album, a fourth album, kind of going down, going down sales wise and no hit on the on two, three and four, a minor hit on two, minor, minor. Uh, but three and four were dead issues. And but some of my favorite songs were on those. And uh, by the time 1970 came along, the group had done Paint Your Wagon four months on the set up in Oregon, came back, and Jeff broke up the band because he no well, nobody liked Ralph, and Bruce was going crazy. And uh, so these early members disappeared. Oh, Chris Jarrow was in the band then, yeah. And he wanted to do other things. So for six months, we didn't do anything. There was no dirt band. Mm-hmm. Jeff and I were watching Poco one night, six months later. Poco was playing as Pogo because that's what their original name was. And uh, Walter Lance, the cartoonist, hadn't sued them yet. He was threatened. Well, as soon as he threatened to sue, they changed their name to Poco. And Jeff and I looked at each other and went, these guys are really good. You want to get the band back together? Neither one of us can remember who said it first. But we got back together and made album number five, which had, it was Uncle Charlie and his dog Teddy, which had all kinds of eclectic things. I got to explore tunings. Do, do I got to do, you know, the uh, Opus 36 tune. And had Clinch Mountain Backstep and Randy Lynn Rag, which led to the Circle album. Let me ask you about that Opus piece. I mean, you mentioned how when you heard Bill Keith do his new style, that it was like a light bulb coming on for you. When you recorded that piece, was that the first of its kind that was on an album that you knew of? Like more of a classically? There was classical banjo back in, you know, 1910, 1920. There were classical banjo orchestras. I, uh, as far as Opus 36 goes, it was the first time I'd heard something like that by a solo banjo. Yeah, I learned it off the sheet music. It took me a, mm-hmm. took me two weeks, a month, because I had to redo. <laughs> it's like uh, uh, there's parts of it that are like. Uh, yeah. and, and just to find them and uh, do these little licks and, and to find them and to find this this part that sounds like the hardest part and all it is is the string yeah, come on and you go up an octave and so it's like when you put it in context and it sounds like a lot of notes and all it is is over and over <laughs> so you, anybody could do that. Wow. 
And here, a little Earl Scruggs pick. Using the fingernail on the left hand. I didn't know it that he did uh, that, I, but I had the, anyway. Finger, you know, Earl used the fingernails on his left hand. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah, for like, uh, what is it, Sally Ann, I think, the some of the slides on? Yeah, a lot of things like Sally Ann and things like that. Yeah. But uh, the Opus 36 was quite a trial. <laughs> I told my brother was producing by then because the first four albums were produced by a guy that said things like, let's get this one over with, you know. <laughs> very, very encouraging. And <laughs> I told Bill, I says, I'll be in, be in it at 11, and I'll be done by 11.05, because uh, it should be done in one take. And it was. <laughs> you know, and oh, wow, that's great. To this day, I'm really proud of that. But I always tried to get things in one take. The String Wizards album that I did, uh, are you familiar with that? Mm-hmm. Eight of those songs, eight of them on that album are first take, one take, and it was really good because some of them were ripping. And I have a, I have a feeling I know why you prefer that, but why don't you explain what you think well, that knew, get, gets to the recording? I knew that Flatt and Scruggs in 1948 and nine, when they made the original sound album, they did. They only had time to record 18 songs in three hours. They only had time for one take. And Earl told, "Oh yeah, we did mainly. We did. We did, did the song, and then we went on and figured out what the next one was. And you know, <laughs> it was. And orchestras play with one take. Great players that I had seen before would would do one do it in one take." So when Roy Acuff made his little speech on the Circle album, boys, let me tell you what my policy in the studio is. You got to get it right the first time and the hell with the rest of them. I'm I'm going, yes, sir, I know what you mean. Yeah. Because I'm not good on the fourth take. (laughs) If I have to do something two times or three times, maybe okay. But if I'm out there grinding away by take four or seven, I don't know the song. Sinatra, one take. Kenny Rogers, one take. And later on, Randy Owen with Alabama, I heard, did one take on his vocals. He did it. Hmm. Well, but with the ones that I know of, like Kenny Rogers would, if it if he couldn't get it on that first, he, I don't know the song. Next song, let me sing one that I know. You know, and so it's uh, more a reflection on your preparation than. Yes, it's it, definitely pre-production, preparation, practice. Yeah, the three Ps. <laughs> preparation and practice. Yeah, there could be something there. You must have a question. Help me. I have plenty of questions, <laughs> yeah. Let's go to the Circle album. Well, wait a minute. Before we get there, the simplicity I was talking about. I mentioned Billy Fair. Fair earlier you know this basic Pete Seeger thing right mm-hmm. right anybody can do that when somebody asks me is it hard to play the banjo you know you can, can you do this can you do this oh yeah I can do that can you do this and then 
yeah, I can do that. Can you do this? That might take a little more. Yeah, I can do that. That's okay. We'll do it all together. That green corn tune? That's green corn. Excellent. Billy Fair was really incredible. Anyway, where were you? Where were you? You're up. Well, I was about to start making you talk about the Circle album, and maybe maybe I just don't have the perspective since I wasn't around when that was recorded and released. But um it se- it seems really interesting that a band like yours that had established itself as, you know, more like the birds or the band than it did sound like a bluegrass band, you know? How did you get all these bluegrass and country stars to really embrace the project? We asked them. That's all there was to it? You never know what'll happen if you ask. There's Mm -hmm. only two answers, yes and no. Bill Monroe said no. Uh, I don't think I need to, I don't, I mean, I don't think I need to get involved with that. He just knew music from his music. You know, Bill Monroe thought everyone had a right to his opinion. And, uh, uh, you know, he, he would say, Bill, Bill Monroe, what do you think about electric guitar? Electric guitar? That, that ain't no part of nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, well, he changed as he got older. He knew we were on the record charts. And... That put us in the same class as The Doors and Aretha Franklin. And he didn't know any of the music. He didn't know that Mr. Bojangles was only electric instrument was a bass. Mm-hmm. I played the mandolin on that. Jeff played guitar and there's an accordion. And But he didn't know any other music. But four years later at a festival, I was opening for him solo. And he came up to me and says, Hey, John. <laughs> I was really happy that he knew my name by then, but that was nice. But yes, Mr. Monroe, if you ever do another one of them Circle albums, give me a call. <laughs> he knows he missed out. Yeah, but uh, it, the opportunity never came up. So I asked Earl Scruggs. I got to know him when he came to see us at Vanderbilt University. Gary Scruggs brought him and the whole family one night. It was a real surprise. Gary was a student at Vanderbilt. He's Monroe's, uh, excuse me, he's Earl's oldest son. And now he's the only Scruggs left. But uh, then he was a student and they came to see us and came to the dressing room. And I was talking about, I got a tape. You know, I got to send you a link. Do you put links up or anything? Sure. Yeah. For what? For what? My brother being the producer and manager kind of guy, he had one of the early Sony portable Betacam recorders. Mm-hmm. And this meeting, the first time Earl came to see me, 
He recorded it. There's a video of it? Yeah. Oh, I would love a, to see it. Yeah, please, it's, it's please send that. and all kinds of stuff. But I, uh, hey, Bill, we're back in the dressing room, which was the girls' locker room <laughs> of the gymnasium. Hey, Bill, I, I heard the Scruggs, Earl's coming tonight. Earl Scruggs, yeah, sure, he's coming. I better, I better, I better, I better get ready. Playing Foggy Mountain Breakdown, the worst you've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, okay. And right then, a knock on the door. And I went, oh, I'll go get the door. I opened the door. It's the entire Scruggs family. <laughs> the door. <laughs> and, you know, I've just been doing that. Yeah. Doing yeah. that kind of thing. I said, oh, shit. Shut the door. <laughs> I said, just a minute. And I tuned up. I was horsing around. I swear. Anyway, and I opened the door, and they're all standing out there chuckling. And come on in, Mr. Scruggs. And it was quite a uh, quite a deal. It's on the videotape, which I'll send you. you can oh, even yeah. Play- you can play it during this. Oh, I would can, love to. Would can you stick it in there? Uh yeah, I mean this this isn't a video show, but the the audio component I would be able to, yeah. Okay, well you can compare it down. I played Randy Lynn because I had put Randy Lynn Rag on the Dirt Band album along with Clinch Mountain Backstep. And Earl heard that and I, I asked her, Why did you come to see this group of hippies playing what we do, I, I wanted to meet the boy who played Randy Lynn Rag the way I intended to. <laughs> oh, wow. That's quite a compliment. Yeah, I said, oh, uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and uh, that was a compliment that makes me feel like I'm 25 years old when I talk about it. And it's 50 years later. Um, it was incredible. We developed a friendship that October of 1970. And in 1971, he was playing with the Earl Scruggs Review, meaning his sons, Gary, Randy, Stevie, and Josh Graves, and Vassar Clements. He was playing a club in Colorado where I was living. And I went to the club and took them to the hotel every night. They were there for a week. And uh, on the last night, I said, Earl, Mr. Scruggs, sir, would you, uh, uh, what is it, John? He's, would you consider recording with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band? He said, I'd be proud to. And I, <clears throat> well, good. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I got his, we had, a, I had his number. And because I had this dream as I was learning how to play, I wanted to record with Earl Scruggs. I wanted to do Soldier's Joy with me frailing. And but that it's a different tuning, but uh, and I was going to get to do Soldier's Joy, is my first thought. Then, yeah. and then I'll do Earl's Breakdown. And then I want to get him to play guitar because Earl played guitar, mm-hmm. it was Carter style, and it was the second thing that I listened to that he did. And uh, yeah, he jumped right in. And then 
I told my brother that night, well, that's great. And then a week later, Doc Watson was playing to Loggy's Club in Boulder. And I'd gotten to know Merle a few months earlier. And I told him I was going to ask Earl if he'd wanted to record with us. And well, let me know what happens. And I, went, I ran up and, hey, Merle, Earl said yes. Well, I got to introduce you to Daddy. I hadn't met Doc yet. And so I met Doc and stuff. And we'd like you to record with us and Earl Scruggs. Mm-hmm. Well, if Earl's going to be there, I want to pick. And that said a lot because with Earl's, Imprature is what's the word? Imprature, uh, but with his validation of us, it made it so Doc was comfortable. Mm-hmm. And then my brother said, "I'm going to call Merle Travis, not knowing how." He got called the record company president. Get the whoever get the number. Call Merle Travis. You want to make a recording with Doc Watson, Earl Scruggs, and. Oh, yeah, I heard Doc Watson named his son after me. He's a fine guitar player. Never met him. And so when, and I, so at what yeah. point in this did the the concept for the album develop? Did you already have uh, the concept before you added Asked Anyone? Second week. Mm-hmm. We're up to the second week. By the third week, Earl, can you get Maybell Carter? And can you find us a couple fiddle players? The, th- the third week, I got the fiddle player. His name, the fiddle player, just one guy. Can he handle all the different styles? He goes, well, his name's Vassar Clements, and he can do pretty good. Yeah. Actually, he said, and I said, can he handle all the styles, Earl? He goes, he'll do. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, okay. I mean, how can you tell the guy that, yeah, he, he should know. And uh, uh, Maybell said, okay. Mm-hmm. And because we needed Earl, I wanted Earl's guitar playing in there. We didn't tell the band. My brother and I did not tell the band yet. But by week end of week three, we're going to go to Nashville and make a record. And Jimmy Martin had come in line then. Mm-hmm. By then, one of the guys goes, "Who's Jimmy Martin?" Two or three of the guys. Anyway, you'll find out. My brother and I had played clubs around Southern California for a good part of the year. And a lot of the music we did, we did was Jimmy Martin music. We did Jimmy Martin, Dillard, Scruggs, Flatton Scruggs, and Earl, and, you know. But I knew who Jimmy Martin was. He was a guy with powerful guitar and voice. But they all got into it. So by the time, eight weeks after I asked Earl that question, we were in the studio recording. And... As I think about it, that was really incredible. Master came together. Earl took Bill and I, my brother, to the Opry to meet the bass player. Junior Hutchinson standing there playing bass. Boys, I'm really proud to be part of this session and looking forward to it. He's playing along with somebody singing on the Opry. (laughs) And having a conversation about something completely separate. Yeah. And... And I cut my teeth on a lot of those tunes. Looking forward to it. Uh, just a second. And he ended the song he was playing with Ernest Tubb. You know? And That's great. That was at backstage at the Ryman. And uh, so, yeah, we got our bass player. 
and then Norman Blake came in to play the dobro. It was an easy call. I tried Josh Graves. I'd called Josh and talked to him for two weeks, but he was playing with Lester Flat then. Oh, you know? Okay, yeah. And he finally called me up and said, "Oh, John, I hate to tell you, but Flat says that as long as I'm on his payroll, he doesn't want me picking with Earl." <laughs> weird. All right. Yeah. And so I got him on the string, my String Wizards album years later, and he, he fried it. He did great. But uh, there we were. The session started, and we recorded for six days, 38 songs. And again, only one or two takes, right? Just like you were saying. Foothill Special was seven takes. Okay. That was because the band wasn't together. I got to sit and watch Earl Scruggs play it perfect seven times. And he stopped sometimes three quarters of the way through. And, and uh, but uh, Earl's breakdown was one take. Yeah, a lot of it was one in one take. Some of it was two. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the fun parts was Lonesome Fiddle Blues, which was kind of like, you know, Vassar's tune. Yeah. And it was in D minor. Right. And I wanted to play it in G tuning. So I asked my brother, how long till we do Lonesome Fiddle Blues? Because he was producing. Right. And and he said, oh, probably about two or three hours. Oh, okay, good. Hey, Pastor, come out in the hallway. And he's out in the hallway. I go, what is that? Okay. Yeah. Oh, now keep, keep going. Okay. And then what, Pastor? You know, I'm figuring it out, right? Uh-huh. I got up to it. I got it. Anyway, I got about halfway through it, and Bill opens the door and says, we got lo- <laughs> to do Lonesome Fiddle Blues now. And I went, oh, okay, <laughs> okay. That's why on the record I go, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I wanted to go. You know what uh, I mean? I, yeah. I did a push beat instead. I didn't know what a push beat was. But, and uh, it sounded better. And uh, this lit. I was just lucky. I got that. <laughs> but. Uh, it was it was really good. Keith came up to me a year later and said, that Lonesome Fiddle Blues, you did that in regular tuning, right? I says, yes, Bill, why do you ask? Because I was a fan, you know, 
but now I was equal to Bill Keith in his mind, and that was a wonderful experience. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so you you mentioned that you spent a lot of time playing Jimmy Martin songs in the clubs, and that's actually one of my favorite little uh, candid moments from the album is when Jimmy, I don't remember the words, but he says, you you, you got all those kickoffs yeah. no, up, up there somewhere. For, you've been picking one for 15 years, ain't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I started, I started, and Earl never did do that, you know. Was that intimidating to have Jimmy telling you, put, putting <laughs> you on the spot? Intimidating, yeah. The best bluegrass singer, as he was prone to tell you. Hi, I'm Jimmy Martin. Glad to meet you. I'm the world's best bluegrass singer. And uh, he made sure everybody knew that. Mm-hmm. Years later, he came up to me and says, you see my tombstone? I said, Jimmy, you're not dead. No, I got a tombstone. I put it out in the... He had a big monument that said, here lies the world's greatest bluegrass singer, Jimmy oh, Martin. That's hilarious. And it was there, and he's in it now. Right, but right. Yes, it was, he fired people from stage, you know? Mm-hmm. It was uh, one time I heard that Bill Monroe put Nola in. You ever heard that story? He I put tried, Nola? Put Nola in. I trace, what was it? I trace little footprints in the snow. And he went, you know, put Nola in the, I trace little footprints in the snow. In, in the song, he goes, that, that don't, that's not notes for that. Footprints <laughs> in the snow. You know, right. you got to, anyway. Yeah, Jimmy Martin was intimidating, but he's also very nice. He was fun. And the reason he is intimidating is he was right. Hmm. If he said, you're dragging, uh, you were dragging. If he said, get with this, he'd put the guitar right up in your face and play it. Here, now play along, play along, play along. And, you know, okay, you got it. And it was just really, really good. Jimmy Martin was a special spirit. Was that difficult to transit? Because he's famously difficult on his on his banjo players in particular to to try to adapt to his rhythm was it difficult for you to do that and then also play along with the carter songs and the the earl scruggs songs and whatever else was was going on were, were those transitions difficult uh, not not to be at the time they were just they had to be done i mean it was one thing like uh playing soldier's joy it's a totally different thing you know you go like yeah. and it's like uh, to go from that to playing bluegrass that was hard and fast and then to playing I played mandolin too on the album but that to, to play just little notes and back up I, I don't I don't know I didn't think of it as difficult it just had to get done we did it in six days I was worried about getting the lonesome fiddle blues right <laughs> right so, yeah what just one thing at a time whatever's whatever's right in front of you at that moment yeah, you right, try to right. take care of that was it well that's really great and and you felt overall that these I don't know why I'm hung up on these people accepting your band kind of into the club, but it just seems just seems like such an unusual thing to be. Uh... Earl Scruggs had sons, mm-hmm. 
they were 14, 15, and 17, 16, and 18. Area is 19, I think. They had the Uncle Charlie album. They played it for their dad. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Martin, he had a son. He played our the Uncle Charlie album for his dad. Uh, Merle Watson, Daddy, this is a band that uses, they did Clinch Mountain Backstep on that album I played for you. Yeah. And boy, is I glad we did Clinch Mountain Backstep. Oh, yeah, I kind of... Yeah, I kind of like that. I like that that uh, banjo and mandolin and harmonica, and, and they use washboard too, you know. And Vassar would do anything. Vassar was gonna sure. first time he was gonna be treated like he deserved to be. He was always treated as a side man. I didn't know I'd been listening to Vassar Clement for several years. He'd been, you know, with Jim and Jesse. I think Jim and Jesse. But he he would do dates with Flat and Scrubs and Jimmy Martin, you know, just just these different people, and he recorded with them. People were smart; they knew he was the best. Mm-hmm. Get Vassar to play, but they wouldn't give him credit. They just use him. And, and Bill was very adamant about Vassar. You're going to have your name on the album. Oh, that's great. And Vassar told me years later, every time I'd see him, it seemed like he'd say, "You know, I'd sure like to thank your brother for giving me a career." Oh, wow. That's great. Meaning, meaning a career where he could go work on his own and be Vassar Clements. Meaning that now, because of the Circle album, Olden in the Way came about. Garcia and most people heard Vassar on the Circle album. They found him. So that was a big deal. Speaking of Garcia, there's that famous photo that everyone knows of, of you playing with him and Steve Martin and... And that's kind of a, a famous shot. Do you remember anything about that day, or is there a story behind that? I've never heard that be called a famous shot. I just it's famous. It's famous to me. This is a banjo thing. I forgot. So yeah, it's famous. Uh, <laughs> Relatively speaking, we were, yeah, we were working in uh, that was a festival in Mill Valley, California, in 1974, and we were at the Troubadour recording. The Troubadour uh, changed, it was called the Boarding House then. Um, the San Francisco one is Boarding House. And right across the river in Mill Valley was the Bluegrass Festival. And uh, we went and played that, and we went back and recorded. And Steve Martin was emceeing that, struggling with that. Yeah, he, he, he was good. But he was playing banjo as good as usual. And... That was just the three of us jamming backstage. It was really fun. Yeah. John Sievert took that picture. S-I-E-V-E-R-T. It. It took a lot of great pictures. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That's going to wrap up the first half of this interview with John McEwen. Stay tuned for the second half, which will come up in a near future episode. You did hear a bunch of sound clips, and in order, they were Return to Dismal Swamp by John McEwen, Hickory Hollow, performed by the Dillards, Edsel Breakdown by Walter Hensley, Buy For Me the Rain by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. The rest of these are all by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Uh, Buy For Me the Rain, followed by Opus 36, Lonesome Fiddle Blues, and Orange Blossom Special. Thank you once again to today's Patreon supporters. That's Greg Webster and Louis Cayadito. Go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast if you'd like to become a supporter. Check out the cool music and other merch over at banjopodcast.com. 
contact the show, pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. And if that's not enough web addresses for you, then uh, I, I just don't know what to say. You'll just have to tune in next time to hear some more. So I'm going to get out of here and everyone have a good one. <laughs>